thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to be be challenged by it. And I just pray now that you would help me to communicate it clearly. Pray for your spirit's uh, anointing, filling for all of us so that we can be moved and changed and made more like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Years ago, I became the youth pastor at a church in West Virginia. And within the first few weeks of becoming that youth pastor, I met a teen girl that I keep in touch with today. Of course, she's not a teenager anymore. But she was 15 at the time, and uh, she grew to become one of the leaders in that youth group. She was one of the few public kids, uh, public school kids. There was a large Christian school next to the church. She was one of the few public school kids that I had in my group. And because of her, I got to meet a lot of kids I would not have met otherwise. She was normally there on Wednesday night. Again, she was a leader in the group. She was uh, one I could count on in most uh, functions and situations if I needed to ask for help. But there was one Wednesday night, one youth group, that we still talk about. It's a Wednesday night that she didn't show up. No big deal. It was one Wednesday night. But when I saw her the following Sunday, I made a casual remark, I missed seeing you on Wednesday. And she replied, I had to wash my hair. Now, in the moment she said that, we both knew it was a pretty lame excuse to skip. To her credit, she came to me later and apologized, saying she had gone out with some friends. Now, put a happy ending on this story. She's married today, has two kids. She loves the Lord, is a deputy sheriff in Ohio, and recently got a commendation for catching a child predator. And we joke to this day for her need to wash her hair. But the point being is that she sinned. And she recognized it and she came. And, and while that silly little lie of her really never put our relationship in any danger, she realized her need to confess it and ask for forgiveness. But let's talk about something more serious. Years ago, I met a, a man who because of a direct sinful decision caused the death of his closest friend. He wasn't looking to kill anyone, but he made a sinful decision, and that man died. And I tried to share the gospel with him about how the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from our sins, but he insisted that his sin was too big. There just wasn't anybody who could forgive him, and there wasn't enough blood to cover it up. Now, just a couple of months ago, I gave a ride to a man who had just gotten out of jail. It was about a 20-minute drive to where he was going, and I shared with things, uh, shared things with him. And he shared with me a lot of things that he had done that he knew were wrong, yet he didn't quite understand why he continued to do them. This was really the third or fourth time he'd been in jail. And so we continued to talk, and I found out that he had grown up in church and, and kind of knew a little bit about the gospel. And so I shared with him. Really, a lot of what I'm going to share with you this morning. And he made it very clear to me that he could never deserve to to have what Jesus said he did. In our text this morning, we have three stories. One about a leper being cleansed, a paralyzed man who is healed, and a party filled with questionable people. But before that text, we have a, a story about fish. 
about fishermen who are out and fishing all night, catching nothing. But Jesus comes, tells them to go fishing one more time, and they fill their nets to the point that the nets are going to break. And Jesus uses that illustration to tell Peter and the other disciples, this is what I want you to do. This is what we're going to do together. But we're left with the question, how is this possible? How is it going to happen? Once again this morning, I'm going to do what I did last week, and I'm going to walk you through these three stories, and then at the end, I'm going to give you two applications. We want to start then in verse 12. The Bible tells us that Jesus has been touring, he's preaching, and he's approached by by a man that the Bible describes as full of leprosy. If you're not familiar with leprosy, it is a disease, depending on the type, where your body begins to rot before you die. And depending on the type, it can be very contagious. Now, this disease has been addressed since the Old Testament. If you had the smallest spot on your hand, you had to go see a priest, the priest would declare you unclean. At that point, you could no longer go to public worship. You were quarantined or sent outside the camp or the city. And anybody who touched you, physically touched you, interacted with you physically, would suffer the same fate, whether or not they had the disease. So in the Old Testament, because this disease was the way it was, God would use it often as a picture. In some cases, yes, God would give leprosy to people. And in those moments, what it was meant is you could see the rotting flesh on the outside. And what God wanted us to see is that what was going on on the inside matched what was going on the outside. But there are also passages where God took away the leprosy for the same reason. He wanted people to be able to see the cleanness on the outside to know the cleanness on the inside. Now, if for some reason or in some way your leprosy went away, you were allowed to come back to the priest, and the priest, if he found you to be completely clean, would declare you clean. And what you would have to do at that point is give a sacrifice. Once you've given the sacrifice, you were allowed back into public worship, allowed back into society, allowed back to interact with your family and friends. But I want you to note in verse 12 what the Bible says. This man was what? Full of leprosy. We don't know quite the picture, but it certainly means that there was more than just a little spot on his hand. Something about this man made it very clear that he has had leprosy for a while and that he had it severely. We don't know if he was missing or if he had holes in his face because that would happen. We don't know if you could see the, the muscular structure in his body or maybe even the bone. We don't know if he was missing fingers. We just know that when we talk about this man, he was full of leprosy. And we're supposed to understand he is very sick. Now, in verse 12, this guy goes to Jesus and begs to be healed. Now, we don't know why he knows that Jesus can do this. We just, we just know that he sees Jesus and he goes and he says, will you heal me? And we get a very beautiful scene. I think every video I've seen of Jesus' life has this moment in it. The leper says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus responds, I am willing, be clean. But the shocking part is in the middle. Because what does Jesus do? He stretches on his hand and does what? He touched him. 
Now, the point here is not that Jesus could have become unclean. The point here is that a man is made clean by Jesus who remains clean. And the disease is meant to represent the infectious nature of sin and how it was removed without tainting the one who removes it. And the man is sent away to go make his sacrifice. But along his way, he tells everybody he knows about what Jesus did. And we were told that as a result, the crowds around Jesus grew larger. The next account starts in verse 17. The scene is set. After the leper healing, Jesus' popularity increases tenfold. In fact, we're told that not just people, but religious leaders are coming from everywhere. North, south, east, and west. They want to come and see him and hear him, but then the general population is coming because they want to be healed. Now, I want you to understand. When something like this would happen, they would immediately know how to organize You see, what they would do is they would organize the same way they would organize in the temple. The religious leaders would have the best seats. They would have sat closest to Jesus. Whoever was hosting that day would be their house. Those people would be next. And then the, the crowds would be basically filling in as you could kind of push and pull your way through whatever crowd that, you, that is there. In verse 18, we're told that there are some men. And they have another guy who is on his bed. They're carrying him on a stretcher-like bed. Now, if you know this Sunday school story, you probably know know this by heart. You you realize that these, these guys are trying to get this paralyzed man to see Jesus. The implication here is that they've been trying, but the crowds have been too big, too big, or perhaps even uncooperative. No, I will not let you through. How many have ever been to an event like that? Maybe you've been to Husker Stadium and tried to to get to your seat at the beginning rush of getting into the stadium or perhaps trying to get out of a stadium. Now, if you're just by yourself, what could you do? If you're a guy like me who can see pretty far, you can just kind of move people out of your way. You can kind of slip in and out. You can kind of make your way and you can kind of push a little bit with your elbows, but eventually you're going to make your way there. If you've got somebody with you, you know, like if I had my wife, I would just take her by the hand and I would make way for her to come with me. But imagine there's four of you. You're at Husker Stadium. You're trying to get out of the stadium or get into the stadium. There's four of you and you're carrying a guy on a bed. There are no special handicap parking for you. There's no special assistant to get you to your seat. There's, there's no help. You have to rely on people cooperating and apparently nobody's cooperating. Everybody, there's just this sea of people, this mass of people trying to get to see the man who healed the leper. But then we see in verse 19, they took the man onto the roof and lowered him down to Jesus. Now, this would have been actually very simple. Houses back then would have had a very flat roof. There would have been stairs going on the outside of the house to the top of the roof. Uh, Think about it in Proverbs. You get a proverb that says a man would rather sleep on his roof than deal with a contentious wife. It was flat. It was roomy. There was place up there for you to hang out, kind of like your deck. So they removed a tile. They lower the man down. Now let me ask you a question. Why is the man there? The man in the bed. Why does he want to see Jesus? This is not hard. Because he's paralyzed, right? He gets down there. Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven. 
Jesus saw their faith, according to the text. He saw them that they would believe that he could heal this man. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And what's the point? Luke is clearly expressing to us that this man had a bigger need than his paralysis. Now, of course, this causes outrage among the religious leaders who are actually absolutely right in this moment. Nobody can forgive sins but God. Which is why Jesus responds, let me show you who I am. He says to the man, rise, take up your bed and go home. The healing of the man, of course, is about making sure that he understand he does have the authority to forgive sins. And at the end of that account, we're told that the people are just blown away. Then verse 27, we get the third account. We're given very little information about this initial encounter with Levi. We know him as Matthew. What the Bible does tell us is what he did for a living and what Jesus, that Jesus called him. It's likely Luke is summarizing a, a longer conversation. We could speculate that maybe Levi's conscience has been bothering him and he's been wanting to get out of this job, but it is just speculation. All we really know is that here is Levi sitting there collecting taxes. He comes, Jesus comes by, says to follow him, and that's exactly what he does. We're supposed to understand in verse 28, we've seen this before. If you go all the way back to verse 11 of chapter 5, when Jesus calls Peter, James, and John, the Bible says what? They left everything and followed Jesus. Peter, James, and John left their boats, left their fishing, left their livelihood to follow Jesus. And now here Matthew gets up from the table, leaving all the money behind, leaving his livelihood behind. And what does he do? He leaves it all behind. Now, you may know the cultural situation here, but let me remind you. There were not supposed to be tax collectors in Judea. If you know your Middle Eastern history, there's a point where Julius Caesar is running for his life. He's being chased all over by a group of uh, of army who are just wanting to, to, to capture Caesar. Then he gets cornered. And kind of as one of those superhero stories, here come this Jewish army out of nowhere to rescue Caesar. And for rescuing him, he goes back to Rome and declares, as long as I have rule of Judea, as long as Rome controls Judea, there will never be a day when the Jews will pay taxes. <coughs> Which is why what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2 is so significant. After years of expansion and war, what does Caesar Augustus decide to do? This isn't hard. To tax. Caesar Augustus and all the world is going to be taxed, and that's why Matthew is sitting there. This was such a contentious issue in that place. There were rebellions, there were terror attacks that were occurring in Judea. The tension between Rome and Judea over these taxes was why... Jesus will get asked by the religious leaders whether or not they should be paying taxes. And if you think about it, it's a pretty slick move on Pilate's part when he condemns Jesus. He gets the religious leaders to say, we have no king but Caesar. Now following his calling to follow Jesus, we told that Levi throws a party at his house. And we're not surprised to see that this cultural outsider, this, this person who would be considered a betrayal... He knows a lot of people like him. People that 
the Bible will describe is probably very rich because they were other tax collectors. But also people the Bible describes as substance abusers, immoral people. These are the kind of people that if you met them, my bet is you would be envious of their wealth and disgusted by their lifestyle. What the religious leaders say in verse 30 is so natural. Why would you hang out with those people? Why would you talk to that person? It wasn't just religion. It wasn't just politics. The religious leaders simply did not like these people. And out of that, we get an account, a mission statement from Jesus. I have come to call sinners to repentance. This is how Jesus is going to fish for men. He's going to call sinners to repent. And so now we get two very straightforward applications. Number one. Number one, sin is your biggest problem. Sin is your biggest problem. There's a YouTube video that I watched a while back. It was from a a man on the street segment from about 80 years ago. The film was quite grainy. The audio kind of cut in and out. But it was a man who was asking the people what they thought was the biggest problem in their community. And there were a range of answers. One older man said the schools were not performing. A lady talked about crime in certain parts of the neighborhood. Of course, the ageless complaint about politicians and the price of food. And I bet that if we did the same thing, we would find, if we asked random people here in Nebraska, what do you think the biggest problem is? We'd get a lot lot of answers like that. And probably a few more, like the lack of moisture, taxes, politicians, COVID, recreational drugs. But if we made it more personal, what if I asked you? If I randomly came up to you and I said, what is your biggest problem? What would you say? Would you say it was your mental health? Would it be job loss? Marriage problems? Parenting problems? But the Bible is very clear. It says your biggest problem is sin. It's not just that you commit sin. It's that in your very nature, you pervert, you distort, you ruin, you destroy. Don't believe me? Think about this. For some of you, it was not that long ago that you were holding a precious newborn baby. Perhaps you had a little tear in your eye, and perhaps you were experiencing joy and burstings of love that you've never felt before. But a few years later, that same little thing draws on your walls and eats your secret stash of candy and leaves your stuff on the floor for you to step on and trip over. Have you handled every single one of those moments the right way? Or perhaps on that wedding day, you stared deeply into each other's eyes and you declared all sorts of things about your love and how it was not going to be tainted by anything. But if you've been married more than an hour, you've already said and done things you probably shouldn't have. You're a sinner from your head to your toes, inside and out. Now, the Bible's tried to help us with this, tried to help us understand this. We have so many different expressions of sin to try and grasp. For example, if you're one of those people who loves watching the 24-hour news cycle, the Bible uses the picture of a corrupt politician whose sin is like a cruel and corrupt king. Or perhaps you're into social issues, and the Bible talks about sin being an enslaver, a cruel slave master. 
Perhaps you're into medicine. We see here that the sin is described as an incurable sickness. Perhaps you're into law and order. Sin is about a rap sheet a mile long that you will never serve enough time for. Maybe you're into money and it's finances. Your sin is your debt with interest accumulating that you will never pay back. We have so many pictures. But that sin is crushing, destructive reality that puts you right in line with the perfect and righteous wrath of God that you cannot escape. The Bible warns us that there's even sin in our lives that we cannot see, that we have no ideas there, that is so natural to us that we don't see it for what it is. The Bible describes sin as large and as small, big and as little, but it also tells us even the smallest sin is like lying about the need to wash your hair to get out of youth group. It's still a lie. It's still sin. Sin has been your biggest problem since the day you were woven together in your mother's womb. But it brings us to number two, the second application. Jesus forgives sins. Now I want to be up front here that when the Bible says that Jesus forgives sins, it's talking about an actual exchange. We see this in the text. He calls sinners to repent. He calls to become and ask. That's what the leper does. He comes and he asks. Or let me say it this way. Several years ago, the Pope of the Catholic Church declared that if you went to Rome and you walked through the, the doorway of St. Peter's, that every sin that you had ever committed will have been forgiven. doesn't matter if you were Catholic, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever. If you walk through the doors, your sins would be forgiven. And that's the kind of stuff that caused the Protestant Reformation. Because there is no way to receive the forgiveness of sins without asking for it. Sin is corrupting every part of our being. But Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. When we ask the question, is he willing? The answer is what? I am willing, be clean. So let me end by giving you seven Seven things to remember about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Number one, if you have never asked, you have never received. If you have never asked, you have never received. If you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you have never received that forgiveness. Number two, if you say you have no sin, John tells us you are a liar. If you say you have no sin, the Bible tells us that you are a liar. Number three. If you say you have too much sin for, God, for Jesus to forgive, you are not being humble. You are not being a good person. You are being an unbeliever. If you say that you have too much sin for Jesus to forgive, you are not being humble. You are not being a good person. You are being an unbeliever. Number four, if you want to be forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future, you simply need to ask. You simply need to ask. Number five, this is a tough one. Jesus has the authority to forgive the sins of people whose sins you do not want forgiven. 
Jesus has the authority to forgive the sins of people whose sin you do not want forgiven or do not feel deserve to be forgiven. In other words, he asks nobody's permission to forgive anybody's sins. Number six, he always forgives when he's asked. There's no need for your motivation to be exactly perfect, your words to be perfect. You can be standing or sitting or walking or chewing gum. He always forgives when he is asked. Number seven, when Jesus forgives sins, they are forgiven and removed. And what that means for you is that your spouse, your child, your neighbor, or whoever it is who wants to bring up your sin over and over again has no right to do so. God does not keep an account of the record of sins that have been washed away by the blood of Christ. Say that again. When Jesus forgives sins, they are forgiven and they are removed. And so your spouse, your child, your neighbor, or anybody else who wants to bring them up has no right to do so. God does not keep an account, does not keep an account of the sins that have been washed by Jesus' blood. In our first account, we had a leper, a disease that corrupts every part of the person. And there we have for us the picture of sin. In the second account, we have Jesus cleaning, claiming to have the authority of God to forgive sins. Proves it by healing a paralyzed man. And then in the last account, we have the worst sinners eating with Jesus and Jesus giving forgiveness to those who ask. So from the first account to the last, we see sin is our biggest problem. But we also see that Jesus forgives sins let's pray father thank you for this wonderfully comforting truth being able to see the biggest problem we possibly have i shouldn't say possibly father the biggest problem we do have and lord that there is a solution jesus forgives sins thank you for that wonderful comfort and we pray this in jesus name amen